Thank you for taking Welcome the time to get the naked, naked podcaster. If you'd like get to hear the all story of someone strong enough, your story is unique all. and valuable. The naked podcaster is a representation of freeing yourself, giving you permission to be real in all your quirkiness, baggage, struggles to success, and tragedy to triumph. I'm so excited you're joining the journey. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Hello and welcome to the Naked Podcaster. This is Jen Taylor and today I am with Susanna Quintana. Susanna, how are you? I'm good. Really happy to be here with you. Me too. And it's in the afternoon. I love that. Your website is SusannaQuintana.com. So it is your name. It will be in the show notes along with other things. Tell me what the website is about. Sure. Well, the website is uh, my place for people to not only read more about my story, but also to connect with me and to reach out for help. Um, Speaking as a survivor of emotional narcissistic abuse, um, when we are victims, we feel all alone in our struggle. And so this is a place, my, my website is to reach out and to, you know, talk to me, find somebody who knows the journey that you're on and what you're, what you're going through. And cause that's really hard to find somebody who understands, you know, because of all the, um, all the stereotypes surrounding abuse. Um, and, and there's not, even though narcissists, the term is all the rage. Um, there's actually not a whole lot known about what it is to be a victim. And a lot of times, you know, I went through three therapists myself who I was re-traumatized all over by because they had no idea, you know, what it was um, to be a victim. So my website is that safe place for people to come, for women to come and to, you know, find uh, validation and find out that they're not alone and to reach out for help. I love you say a couple things on your website, which is fantastic. One of the things you say is I'm telling on everybody. And I love that because it's so true. And the, and you follow it later on on that page by saying, if people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. Absolutely. Yeah. That's my favorite quote from the writer Anne Lamott. And this is what's so important. Um, This is why I do what I do. And this is why I speak out is because my entire adult life, I've had men try to shut me up and it was successful up until I was about in my mid forties. And since then, since escaping, you know, I know that the majority of women out there are um, either harassed, bullied, or pushed into that silence and they can't speak out. So that's why I've just made up my mission to, I'm not shutting up anytime soon, no matter all the forces against me that still want to keep me quiet. Have you had a lot of kickback? We can kind of go back into your story, but have you had a lot of kickback in, uh, in sharing your story? You know, the only, um, and this is, you know, the biggest fear for victims who then become survivors, right? As soon as you escape is that you get to a point where you want to start telling people your story, but you're afraid because you've been conditioned or brainwashed for so long into thinking that, A, nobody's going to believe you if you go and tell them anyway, or B, you're going to have consequences and get punished for it by, by your abuser, by the one who, you know, typically by a narcissist. So in my case, I had been, um, you know, I had been sort of during my second marriage to a diagnosed narcissist, I had been pushed, bullied, harassed into silence, into submission. And so it took me a while um, to start talking, you know, to just dip my toe in the water and start once I escaped and start telling my story. And there absolutely was um, consequences because that's what narcissists do. Narcissists are punishers. So my ex, along with not only stalking me, cyber stalking me for two years after I left him and having to go through restraining orders and court appearances and criminal investigations and you name it, I went through it. Um, but always this, uh, sort of push to just shut me up. Um, and, and it, it didn't work. <laughs> it used to work in the past, you know, like I said, up until my mid forties, it, it worked because I grew up in a household where my father made it very clear that women should not speak unless we were saying something nice. And, you know, um, and if we weren't saying something nice, we just needed to keep that shit to ourselves 
and because we were being mean. And when you're a girl growing up, especially in our culture, you know, we're told that girls are supposed to be nice, right? Like sugar and spice. Um, so that was what I adhered to because I didn't want to be known as the mean girl. I didn't want my father to think I was mean or my first abusive husband to think I was mean or my second abusive husband. So it made sense that I just, you know, fell into line and became this submissive um, doormat because I, I, I had just started to, you know, I had really believed that it wasn't in a woman's, it wasn't a woman's place to speak out. When you were younger and being raised and your dad was saying to be nice, what was your mom's reaction or impression or what did she say? And what was your dad's personality? You're talking about uh, someone who's diagnosed with narcissism. <clears throat> what about him? Yeah, well, my dad was and is still to this day an absolute narcissist um, and is still very much abusive. That's why I no longer have him in my life. Um, but growing up, you know, what I learned over time was that the interesting thing is that though my father was emotionally and verbally abusive, especially to my mother, what was equally important was what my mother was modeling for what a, you know, for what a woman to do, for what a wife is supposed to do. And she modeled silence and submission. So she never, 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 ever, ever um, stood up you know, for either herself or her children. Um, she was always quiet. Uh, so, so I saw this model of a man is the one who, the husband is the one who rages and can do and say whatever he wants. And the women are just lucky to get a seat at the table, but we better be quiet. And if we do open our mouths, we better have something nice to say about him. So that's what was being modeled for me. So it was, it made absolute sense that I left my father's house at 18. And by age 20, I had met, you know, and fallen in love with my first abusive partner. Did you go to college? Did you strike out on your own? Yes, I went to college. And the interesting thing is that because when I was in high school, I was very much a rebel, even though I had this, um, you know, dysfunctional and what, you know, I just wrote a piece on this about what a broken home act looks like. And the, the good news is for all single moms out there is we're not, our kids don't come from broken homes. My home is already broken. The one I grew up in and my parents were very much together and married. Um, but even having this broken home, broken and dysfunctional home that I was growing up in, in high school, I was um, you know, I had a great time with the boys and I didn't, um, you know, I was always, let's say in the better position. I never got my heart broken in high school. I was always in control of the situation. Um, and then what was interesting is that as soon as I, you know, got out of high school and I went into college, um, I met my college boyfriend who was an absolute jewel. He was just the most wonderful. I hope that he's thriving today because he just deserves the world. We were together for nearly a year and he treated me like it, I had never been treated. It was completely unfamiliar to me. So what did I do? I dumped him. <laughs> um, I dumped him at, when we had been dating almost a year and when I dumped him for um, what would turn out to be my first husband, who, by the way, treated me like shit from the get-go, from like right away. And obviously now I can look back, right? I have my PhD in hindsight and, you know, I can, this all makes sense to me. But of course, at the time it didn't make sense, but that's what was comfortable to me. That's what was safe, right? Is that, it, and it sounds counterintuitive and it sounds crazy that it's like, why would you choose an asshole over somebody who was so good to you? And it was just, it was just a matter of, I had no self-esteem, no self-worth, no boundaries. I didn't even know what a boundary was. So it made more sense. I, I just unconsciously went to the place that I knew, which was that all I knew was that men were this way and I had normalized the abuse, right? I didn't know this was abuse because at the time I thought abuse was black eyes and broken bones and I didn't have those things. So, and my mom didn't have those things. So 
I didn't see it as we were in, a, in an abusive family. No, hi, I love the PhD in hindsight. The other thing is that even if you realize that the situation is not great and you don't yeah. want to be part of it, it is familiar. And there yeah. is some amount of safety and familiarity. I think a lot of women seek out or find or, and you know, I mean, how many times have you heard someone say like, do I have a kick me sign on my back? I do. I, maybe I'm just attracting this. And yeah. I think, yeah, you, you do and you are, and you may not like it, but man, the unknown is terrifying. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. I get you, especially at that age at 18, like you're not formulating a conscious thought like I don't deserve this guy who's being so nice it's just right. uh, very uncomfortable to be treated well yeah absolutely um and of course yeah like you said it's all unconscious mm-hmm. um but but again because of the household I'd grown up in this was totally normal for me I thought this was how men were I thought this was how uh, what a marriage looked like Um, so, so when I met my college boyfriend who was just this wonderful person, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it because still in my head, I had been conditioned by my father, um, to think that I was not worth anything, you know, growing up, um, I can count on two fingers only the times he gave me a compliment Um, and even those two compliments were, one of the compliments was I overheard him talking to my mother and he said he was complaining about something that my future, or I don't know what it was, but I remember him saying, but she is so nice. And I thought, oh, that's it. That's the key. I need to be nice. Now I need to be nicer so that I can get his attention. I can get him to like me. I can get him to love me, you know? Um, and that's why, uh, in high school I became that rebel because the only attention I got from him was when I got in trouble. So I got into a lot of trouble, (laughs) but I went, but I just, I just came out of his house with this mindset of, I wasn't worth anybody's time, right? I wasn't worth anything that came out of my mouth was not worthy enough to be listened to. My opinions didn't matter. Um, nothing about my life mattered. So going into, you know, that's a dangerous place for a young girl to be. Um, you know, the old, the old saying of you go looking in the back of car seats for, you know, your father's love that you never had. Um, that was totally true in my case. And again, it's because, well, teenagers just, you know, and I have three kids and two of them are still teenagers. So I can say this and I used to be a teenager, but we already are not really super smart when it comes to, you know, we're not emotionally mature yet. We don't have that wisdom. So then to pile on top of that onto a girl, this, uh, this lack of, um, any sort of, of self worth that isn't, that's a dangerous pot to stir. Right. And it's, you know, I, my theory, and I just wrote a piece today about this as far as I don't believe that we attract abusive people because that inherently says there's something wrong with us, if that makes sense. And it, and it puts a little shame and blame on us. But what I did do looking back is I had open doors so that, you know, narcissists and abusive people could walk in and I let them walk in. So that was something that, you know, I had to look and really take an honest, honest look at myself and see why did I have these open doors? I also think that you still are going to go back to and are most comfortable with what's familiar. So you want to open the door to those situations yeah. subconsciously. Like I, I'm not saying that we're asking to get abused because I've been in similar situations right. to you, but we, we want to be around what's familiar. And if there's an issue with our self-worth or self-esteem, that nice guy that treats you great, you're wondering, what has he got up his sleeve? Exactly. You don't trust it. Yeah. Right. What am I missing? Why? Um, There's got to be a hidden agenda. And with people that are just outwardly narcissistic that treat you that way, you know their agenda. It's very safe. Yes. So you, you have this boyfriend that is not treating you well. And I see I, you're, you're a published author and your book is on your site. And I've read 
uh, about two thirds of it. I was trying to get all of it done before our meeting today, but I didn't get it all done. But you, you talk a lot about how you were really in love with this person. You're giving them everything. And I could so relate to that. And what happened? What were the signs that you didn't see? Well, when I first, um, you know, was in college and then I met my first husband at the age of 20. Um, and he was, whether he was a narcissist or not, I was with him for until I was 29. I left him because he had this little habit of just cheating with every single vagina that came into his, <laughs> into his space. It was like he couldn't help it. It was like automatic. It was just like, ding. Okay, I have to have sex with that woman. Um, so um, so I don't know if he was a narcissist, but I will say that, and there was a big difference. There, was a, there were a lot of similarities between my first and second husband, and then also there were some glaring differences. But at the core, they both, both of my um, ex-husbands were very similar to how my father treated me. Now, my father was overtly abusive. Like there was, you know, even though you hear a lot about narcissists, like my second husband was extremely charming, still is, I'm sure, could still, you know, talk the panties off of any woman that comes in his midst. Um, but but my father was, was just overtly uh, mean and a bully, and there was no, nothing charming about him at all. So my first husband resembled my father a lot more in that he wasn't very likable. And like I said, he sort of, he treated me like shit right from the beginning. Um, he cheated on me all through our, you know, before we were engaged, during engagement, while I was pregnant and, and on and on. Um, then when I left him, I dove straight into, and this is, I talk about this a lot in my book, and this is a huge mistake that, that we make when we're getting out of abusive relationships, when we don't take time for ourselves, right? Is that I just dove straight from number one into number two. And my second husband was a diagnosed, he was later diagnosed as a narcissist, but the, the ink wasn't even dry on my divorce papers when I had already fallen in love with, with my second husband. And that's because he was a true narcissist in the sense that, you know, in the beginning, he love bombed me. He was so charming. He said everything I wanted to hear. Um, he was quite irresistible. I fell hook, line, and sinker in a very, very short time. Um, and, and, I feel like, you know, what I speak a lot about narcissistic abuse and what it is to recover and heal from it. Um, and I feel like my second husband was such a classic case, an example of what a relationship with a true narcissist is like, because it starts out explosive. You get on the roller coaster, your eyes are squeezed shut. You don't know what's happening. You're scared as hell, but you don't want to get off because it's so fantastic. Um, they, they lift you up. They, they put you on the pedestal. They treat you like a queen. Everything is great. The relationship moves along very, very quickly. And then over the years, um, th the mask starts to slip off, but by the time it does, you're already so, you're, you're just so invested. You know, I had children, I was married. Um, we had businesses together. We had light our, our life goals and dreams and desires. So by that time, you know, by the time the mask starts slipping off, it's not something, you, you know, you really even notice what's happening. You just spend a lot of time in confusion. You're like, wait, wait, what? I thought, wait, who's this guy? What did he just say? You know, you're like, where did the guy I met go? And okay. So with the first husband, when he was having the, all of the affairs, did you know about them at the time they were happening? No, I had no idea because they weren't affairs. They were um, just quick, you know, he had a little, uh, he had, let's just say he had a little uh, timing problem. So, uh, so they were very quick encounters. I'll just say that. Um, but yeah, I, I had no idea. There were things, I mean, you have to understand at that age, at age 20, I was so flipping naive. Oh my God. Like you couldn't find a more naive girl out there. I was so clueless about life, about love, about anything. Cause I hadn't been taught anything by my parents. Right. I had just been modeled 
of everything that's wrong in a marriage. Um, so no, I, I didn't know until the very end. Um, and that's when I started discovering, you know, uh, and then, you know, and then of course it all came to pass that he admitted everything and, and, and that's when I, I ended up leaving. But, um, with my second husband, it was more of, and I hear women say this a lot is that when I started looking back, then I could say, "Mm, yeah, I knew, I knew, but I didn't want to know at the time. Right. But with my first husband, I was just so, I was so naive. Oh my God. I was just like, just to give you an example of how naive I was. So when I was 22, uh, we wanted to try to get pregnant. Um, so I went to, and, and I had been going to get pap smears every year since I was 16 years old when my mom put me on the pill and she did that for my period. Cause I was missing school days, right? It was not because I was sexually active yet. Um, so I had always had normal pap smears every year until I met my first husband. Then every single pap smear was abnormal, which, uh, so when I went in to say, Hey, I want to get pregnant. They're like, uh, not so fast. And they said, we're going to do a biopsy. There's something wrong. And long story short, I had HPV and they did not, none of the doctors, which was crazy. And I remember thinking I went in, I went in to get the laser surgery all by myself. My husband at the time was never came into the doctor's office with me. So I was laying there on, and, and I had no idea what HPV was. None of the doctors told me this was a sexually transmitted disease or, or anything. Um, none of them even asked me. My dog, my gynecologist didn't ask me, hey, because she knew I was married and that I, you know, I wanted to have a baby. Um, she didn't ask me whether, you know, if there, <laughs> or just let me know, like, you can't get this from somebody's cheating, Right. Yeah, you or him. Um, One of you is cheating. One of you is cheating. And but I had no and I didn't know to ask these questions. I didn't even know what HPV stood for. All I know was that the gynecologist was like, uh, you okay, you need to have laser surgery. So I'm like, okay. And this was right before Christmas. So I was thinking, okay, cool. (laughs) I had my mind on Christmas and presents and I had puppies at the time and I'm like, oh, oh my God, I was so naive. I was like, I had a, the, the, the mindset of like an eight-year-old girl, I swear to God. So I go in for the laser surgery and I'll never forget that moment when I'm laying on my back, my feet up in the stirrups. I've got the three doctors, however many were there between my legs. And there is, you know, laser surgery, right? You got it, laser being shot up in between my legs. <laughs> And I remember starting to smell smoke or something burning. And I sort of opened my eyes because I had my eyes squeezed shut. And I opened my eyes and I smelled smoke and I see a little, or I smelled something burning and I see like a little smoke. And I'm like, oh my God, my vagina's on fire. (laughs) That's how I was like, and I'm looking at the doctors like, is this okay? Do you guys know my vagina's on fire? Like, (laughs) Um, yeah, that's and then I went home and they said, okay, just try again in six months. Just wait, you have HPV and now we just lasered it out, whatever. I'm like, okay. And that was it. Like I never taught, we never talked about it. I, I did get pregnant six months later. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was crazy how naive I was. And it, and it made total sense why I just went through that marriage, just like, la-di-da, you know, um, just, just like the little girl. You don't assume when you get married that these are questions that you need to ask the person you get married to either. Right. Like, right. are you having affairs or what? You, you don't make assumptions in that situation, especially if you have no reason to question anything. So, I mean, yes, I, I think the the OB team that you had was not doing their job, but you weren't, you don't know to ask those questions is what you said. And that is very true. And if I think it's, it's important for the medical field to help educate and make you understand. And it's a shame that they didn't do that, but yeah, you don't know to ask a question. If you just, you just don't know. That's why there's never a stupid question. Yeah. That's so sad. So retrospectively, you saw, you know, that there were something clearly. 
you know, that there are yes. signs. Yes. And how frightening that is. Yes. And actually the most frightening point was in, and again, this was in the, this was in the nineties. So it's a lot different today. There's a lot more awareness for women when it comes to our bodies. And, and, you know, um, it was, it was a lot different back then. We didn't have Google. We didn't have the internet to like go search things or go talk to people, you know? Um, but the most, the scariest part for me looking back is once I found out all the cheating that he had done. And this was, like I said, this was just casual, quick, uh, you know, have sex in a, in, in the back of a restaurant type of thing. Um, and over all that time that we had been together, you know, seven, eight years together. So when I found out that, yeah, basically he'd been cheating on me since we met with anybody he could, um, uh, there was a point where I thought, um, and I didn't really know anything about AIDS at the time because I lived in a really small town and, you know, again, it was the nineties. This wasn't something we didn't have the internet. So this wasn't something that I, I, you know, anybody, this wasn't like in our conversation, it wasn't in our awareness, you know? Um, but I do remember I went to the County health clinic because I thought, okay, uh, he had sex with, I don't even know, countless, countless, countless women over seven to eight years without a condom. Um, I did have the wherewithal to go get an AIDS test and I'll never forget it because the nurse was really, uh, she was not nice to me. And she kind of, she, she was assuming that I was in there because I had slept with somebody without protection or something like that. So I'll never forget that because I was so scared and she sort of just jabbed the needle into my arm and here I'm sitting there going, okay, she's taking my blood do I now have the blood in me because of what my husband at the time, because of his, all of his escapades, do I now have the blood of some woman in me that's going to kill me? Um, and that was sort of a turning point for me as far as, because my son was, uh, I think two, three, three years old at the time. And that was a turning point for me. I was like, you know what? I don't really know where I'm going to go from here or what I'm going to do, but I know that I got to get out of this. So that's what I did. It's so interesting how people pass judgment. What first of all, if you had had unprotected sex or a condom had broken or any of that stuff, and you're getting tested, you should be high fived for being responsible, right. right? I I had a hysterectomy and I had five blood transfusions, and so after those transfusions, I had to go in and get checked for hepatitis and HIV. And even though they test the blood, they have you get checked at certain increments, and it was it's nerve wracking. Okay, what saved my life could have could end up killing me down the road, you know, and it's the same judgment. And I'm like, I had a surgery and needed five blood transfusions and you're treating me like, you know, I'm some street whore and it's crazy what people do. So that sucks, but good for you for getting tested. And God, he could have, there could be pregnancies that happen from that. There could be numerous STDs and HPV as much as it's not fun, is not nearly the worst one. No, absolutely. I'm so thankful that I didn't get like herpes or yeah, yeah, a million other things. Yeah, I feel very fortunate. So you really felt blindsided through this relationship towards the end when all of a sudden you found out all of this information. You must have been like two by four to the head. Yeah, I was. Um, I think though at that time that... I think my actual naivety, you know, that being in that headspace, I think that actually was was um, helpful for me because it wasn't, it was, it was, it was painful to leave him, but there was a bigger part of me that couldn't wait to leave him. Like I knew that there was something better for me out there, um, or just I just had something that was bigger than my love for him that took over. Um, This was not at all what happened with my second husband. It was quite the opposite. But with my first husband, I don't really know what it was, but it was not that difficult for me to leave him. And once I did, and I moved out of the state and I took our son with me, um, and then going through the divorce process, I mean, he was, I, I, I probably hadn't even made it 
to the, you know, in the next state over before he already had a girlfriend who he married, I think it was four months later or something like that. Um, so, and, and, and that didn't, you know, um, the only thing that was, that was very hurtful when I had to deal with him was how he was really abusive to our son and he was very controlling. And I had to go through a lot of court things, you know, with them because he was so controlling. So that was really distressing for me, but, but leaving him and getting over him was not, um, it was not that difficult compared to my second husband. Do you think it's because of your son? Um, you know, I, I don't know because my second husband, I had two more boys with him. Um, so, um, and obviously there was more time invested with my second husband twice as much, more than twice as much time. Um, but I do think there was, because with my first husband, um, what's important to understand is that he was, we, I lived in a very, very small world with him. He was in a church, which I liken to a cult, um, because it was so small and they were very, he was also spiritually abusive. Like they were a super, super small church that were, they were racist. They were sexist. They were, you know, all the women wore skirts. They couldn't wear makeup. Um, I was considered an outsider and I was going to hell. My parents were going to go to hell. Um, even after I married him, right. My, my husband at the time would often say, he's like, that, you know, I'm just going to miss you, Suze, in heaven. I'm just going to miss you. <laughs> so I think there was, and it was so stifling for me to be in this because, you know, I wore jeans and I wore lip gloss and, um, you know, so I was seen as like a Vegas showgirl to these people. <laughs> wow. That's um, a really because strict Because the religion. rules were so strict. They were so strict and, um, and I just didn't fit in. So I think that combination um, with the fact that I'm not even sure if I, you know, w when it comes to like loved him, I'm not really sure if, if he was like a love of mine or if I just left my father's house and was like, Oh, okay. Now I met a guy and I like him, And now we're just going to get married because that's what I'm supposed to do and have a child and, and on and on. So but there wasn't there there wasn't that significant attachment to him, and I know that because there absolutely was with my second husband that I could compare it to. You left your first husband. You did get custody of your son. You moved three three yes. states away, back to Arizona, yes. where you were from, and um, you meet this new guy. So let's jump in there. Yeah, so I had I grew up in Arizona and that's where I was with my first husband. And then when I left him, I moved to Colorado in with a friend of mine um who said, "Hey, I'll take you in and um you know, while you figure out what you're going to do." And she was from a small town in Wyoming and I had been there and met her parents in Wyoming. Um, so I was living with her and she, it was just a couple months I was there and she said, Hey, while you're figuring stuff out, because I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. I had been a business owner with my first husband. We owned a restaurant and I had grown up in the restaurant business and I also had a degree in history. So I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do except be like a super smart waitress? <laughs> you know, like, hey, do you want to hear some Civil War facts while I'm serving the <laughs> Like, I don't know what I can do. Um, so, so my friend said, hey, while you're, you know, before you settle in and get a job and figure all that stuff out, why don't you do something you've always wanted to do? The first thing out of my mouth, I'm like, I want to take dance lessons. I've always wanted to learn how to salsa. This is when I was 29 years old. So I went to this, I found this studio and I went in and my teacher, who I ended up, who ended up being my second husband, um, you know, I was not even physically attracted to him in the beginning. He used to hate when I would tell this story, but I wasn't, I was not physically attracted to him in the least. Um, and, but I love the dancing. So I, um, I, I was taking lessons, but then I couldn't afford it. 
so I told him and told the owners of the studio, I can't, I got to quit. And so they're like, Hey, you need a job and we need a new teacher. So how about we, um, apprentice you, we'll teach you, you know, we won't pay you while we're teaching you, but we'll teach you how to be a teacher. So I did that and I became a ballroom dance teacher and a, and a professional dancer and, you know, would do, um, shows and, and all sorts of, and travel with our students and stuff like that. So it was super fun time in my life. And this is when, this is what, this set the stage for the love bombing of, of my second husband. Now he was, still is, I'm sure. Um, but as narcissists get older, they, it doesn't work so well for them anymore. Right. Cause they're getting older. Right. <laughs> but he was 30 at the time. And, um, and he just poured it on. Once I became a teacher, he started, uh, not just like courting me, but just like it was heavy duty attention and, um, just, you know, made me feel incredible because I didn't know what this was like. I was like, Oh my God, this is so new to me. My first husband did not believe in public affection. He didn't believe in it. I'm like, how can you not believe in it? It's not like it's a ghost, (laughs) but he didn't believe it should happen. You know, even he didn't even, he wouldn't even hold my hand in public. Um, he thought people who held hands or were affectionate in public were disgusting. So he was very, very cold in that sense. So I met my second husband who was Latin and I'm like, holy shit, I got my Latin lover. I go salsa dancing with him. It couldn't get any better, right? Um, Now that I look back, of course, I'm like, oh my God, that was clear love bombing because love does not, and this is one of the things that I, I constantly teach women that I work with is that love does not move that fast, right? Love does not sweep over you like a tidal wave in the beginning. Love takes its time. So, but this was something that I just didn't have those boundaries in place. I was still operating from a place of having no self-worth, right? And no self-respect. Um, so I fell for it. Um, he, it moved so quickly that we weren't even dating yet. I had only known him probably for two months at the most because we were now both teachers. Um, and we weren't even dating yet when he gave me a mixtape because it's the nineties. <laughs> um, he gave me a mixtape. He's like, I want you to listen to this on your way home. So I said, okay, cool. So as I'm driving home from work, I put the tape in and it's the Brian Adams. Have you ever really loved a woman song? Now in that song, it says, I can see my unborn you know, have you ever loved a woman when you can see your unborn children in her eyes? He's like, so did you hear that? And I'm like, yes. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this guy is like so enamored with me. He wants, he wants me to have his babies. I thought this was a good thing. I didn't even question like, whoa, we're not even dating yet. Like we haven't even had a date yet. Um, what this at the stage for Unfortunately, and this is how narcissists are masters at doing this, and this is why they love bomb their their targets, is because it set the stage for me to fall so heavy, so hard for him that I began to ignore the red flags that were immediate. Like right when I met him, there were red flags. Now that I look back, I'm like, oh my God, I see all the red flags, right? There were, I always say this, there were so many red flags I could supply a communist parade. There were so many right from the moment I met him, but he was so persistent, so insistent, and so what I thought was in love with me, you know, that I was, I was the woman he had been waiting for, that the universe had sent me to him to, to, you know, enhance his life and be the man that he's always wanted to be. And, oh my God, all the bullshit that he was, you know, that he was spitting my way and I fell for it. Um, yeah, it made total sense. And that's why the love bombing is such a dangerous place for those of us who, um, we don't have that wherewithal to know that, whoa, I need you. I need to slow down a minute. Right. And this is what, this is what I I say a lot in my book and why it's called, you're still that girl is because that girl within, you know, you can call it your gut instinct or your intuition or sixth sense, whatever it is. 
just that voice within that knows the truth, right? It's like, it's the same that if you're walking in a dark parking lot and, you know, you get hairs that stand up, whatever you're like, danger, danger, right? Or alert. Um, So that girl within, I had to shut her up, right? I couldn't listen to her because she was like, wait, no, don't do this. This is wrong. Look, there's a red flag. This is not who you think it is. You know, all those things. So I'm like, shut up, (laughs) go sit in the corner because I just found a man, a Latin man who's like crazy about me and that I hit the jackpot. So I'm not listening to you anymore. And it's, you know, what's really sucks is that all of the stuff he said to you was true, just not in the right way. And all of the things that he did for you, you deserve, but not in the right way. Exactly. Doesn't that suck? Well, you know, what narcissists do is they take, and this is, this is another thing that is so important to tell women who have been victims of narcissists is because we come out of it thinking we are, we are these terrible people. We're weak, we're pathetic, we're all these terrible things, right? Narcissists do not choose people who are below them. Narcissists choose people because narcissists are not empathetic. They're not beautiful, you know, on the inside. They're not caring, giving people. So that's who they, that's who they choose, right? For their supply. So it's, it's a compliment that, <laughs> you know, that um, you have to look at it and remember that is that, and that's what they do in the beginning is they, they see all your fantastic qualities and they, they also key into the most important things to you. So for example, when I met him, I was a mother to a three-year-old or four-year-old son. He knew that being a mother was the most important thing in my life. So he was constantly telling me what a fantastic mother I was, right? He would also, other qualities about me, like I was really good with money. Uh, I was really creative. I was empathic. I was extremely kind and helpful to people. You know, I just wanted to give, I just wanted to help people, all of these things. So in the beginning, that's what the love bombing is, is they praise you, praise you, praise you, lift you up, lift you up, lift you up, right? Till you're just touching the, touching the clouds. Um, and then over the course of time, that's exactly what they it is the reason for your downfall. That's exactly what they attack later on. That's exactly what they go after to try to bring you down to their level. Um, so, so it, 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 it's such what I call just a grand mind fuck, right? Because you're, you know, a lot of people who've never been in a relationship with a narcissist, they may make the judgment of, well, why did you stay? Or why did you not leave him? Or if he was doing that. And the fact is, is that like when I met him, um, yes, there were nowadays, now I could see that there were um, red flags that I should have paid attention to, but it wasn't like he came up to me and said, Hey, I'm going to make you fall in love with me. You're going to have my children. We're going to, fa- we're going to set a whole life together and it's going to be fabulous. And then I'm going to ruin you and I'm going to rip out your heart and eat it in front of you. Right. Which is what they do, but they don't tell you they're going to do this until it's too late. The other thing about all kinds of abuse is that it's not a switch. It's insidious. It's a little bit here and a little bit there. And, you know, I remember it wasn't a narcissist, but emotionally abusive. And I, I remember realizing that I needed to ask permission to vacuum in case the noise might not be acceptable at that point in time. Right. Fucking vacuum. I didn't ask permission to use the fucking vacuum. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. start out that way. It doesn't start out as right. asking, like that's the most ridiculous, ludicrous thing ever. Um, yeah. But it's so, it's okay. So in your book, you talk about boiling a frog yeah. and that's what it is. Yep. The water yep. is great. It's comfortable. You love it. Yep. And it just turns up a little and it, turns, and it feels kind of good, you know, and, Exactly. Then all of a sudden you're boiling in it. Right. And you can't get out. Yeah. That is right. Right. So right. I completely understand, you know, people are like, how can you put up with that? Well, it's not like that every day. It's not like that. Um, it wasn't like that last year. 
It, it's and it so confusing. Start out like that. No, it's yeah. so confusing. You feel like you're losing yeah. your shit. Yes, absolutely. You do. I remember. I mean, looking back over the 16 years with my second husband, I I spent so much time just what's what's called the fog. You know, I just spent so much time going, uh, wait, what? Um, because he would say something or do something, and I'm like, wait who is this guy? Because this, I, you know, cause he was, he was fantastic for the first, um, I would say from the moment I met him until the moment I left him in the beginning, it was, he was 95% awesome and amazing and everything I wanted. Um, and then 5%, mm, there were some issues. He had a little anger thing going on. He had a little rage thing going on, but it was just, it was, it was very rare. As time moved on, that number, you know, that he was awesome, that went down to 80%. And then, you know, then it was 20% that he was not great. And, you know, living with this Jekyll and Hyde that was constantly until at the end, you know, the last, um, the last few years, but especially, I'll never forget 2011, worst year of my entire life. And that year when I discovered his double life and my whole world came crashing down. But that year, he was probably 80% of the time, he was incredibly cruel. He was distant. He was constantly giving me the silent treatment. Um, he was insulting. He was uh, cheating. Um, he was flirting right in front of me. And 20% of the time, and usually that was because he wanted something, you know, he was nice. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it is so insidious. It's like a cancer that's growing in you and you don't realize it's there until it's this big, huge fucking tumor that you're like, Oh shit. Now I'm going to die. <laughs> what happened in 2011? So I had been by, by 2011, uh, I was a wreck on the outside and narcissists are masters at this. Um, on the outside, we were uh, we lived in a very small town. We knew a ton of people because we had a ballroom and we were dance teachers. Plus, we also had um, businesses and in construction and flipping houses. We were very successful. So we were well known in the town because we did shows and had parties and all that stuff. So on the outside, everything looked enviable, right? It was like, oh, there the, there's the Quintanas. That's the couple who has it all. Whereas behind closed doors... I was getting sicker and sicker as time went on. Um, I was getting physically sick because when you're in an emotionally abusive relationship, it takes a toll on you physically. So even though at the time I was a um, certified holistic health coach with my own practice, I was a professional ballroom dancer. And on the outside, I looked you know, thin and trim and fit and all of that stuff. And I was suffering daily with panic attacks and, and anxiety and stress and stomach aches. It got to the point where um, the last, especially the last year, like 2011 was really bad. Um, I didn't leave the house much. I was afraid I was going to be sick. I went to the hospital a couple of times for panic attacks because I thought I was going to die because <laughs> I didn't know at the time what a panic attack was. I thought only crazy women had those, uh, which cemented the fact that, okay, now I'm crazy. Um, so, so on the inside, um, it, I was just, I was just a mess. And what I had done without knowing it at the time, of course, is I had put myself into an emotional coma because I could not deal with his cruelty on such a consistent basis. And it was getting worse by the year. So in 2011, it sort of was culminating. And just I just remember throughout the year that, you know, it was just a lot of me staying home, isolating myself, um, trying to be there for my kids, but not even being a very good mother because I didn't have the energy. I was sick. I was depressed, all these things. And the worst part of it is I thought it was all my fault right? Because that's what narcissists do is they convince you that you're the one with the problem. Um, while he continued his social life, um, and I was just, you know, behind closed doors, just suffering. So it got to the point where I would break down and I would actually beg him 
Um, I would be crying and sobbing and just all of it coming out. Usually after he had given me the silent treatment, because that usually lasted about three days. And it got so bad that my poor heart could not take the pain anymore. Because if, if, if anybody, you know, if you have ever endured the silent treatment, you know the pain I'm talking about. I used to wish that he would hit me. I used to beg him, like, please, I wish you would hit me. I wish you would punch me in the face so that I would have a bruise or a black eye and I could say, okay, now I'm leaving. Now I'm going to the police. Now I can show people how you're hurting me, right? So in lieu of that and all the pain that I was feeling, um, I used to beg him. I used to beg him to leave. I'd say, there's no way you can love me because because of how you treat me. So please leave because I don't have the strength to. Um, that's usually the point when he would go back into, you know, his, his nice guy just to keep me there. Cause he knew he was about to leave me, um, that he was about to lose me. Um, so what happened was, is because that year in 2011, I had put myself into this emotional coma and I had gotten to a point where I didn't have the energy or the strength or even the caring at that time to, you know, now that I look back to check into why he locked his office, he locked his computer, he, uh, he locked me out of his cell phone. Um, I never knew where he was a lot of the time. He would come home at two o'clock in the morning saying he went out for a beer and he'd come home, you know, drunk and crawl into bed and, and just ignore me. Um, so there were all these things going on that I didn't want to, uh, you know, at the time I was just so defeated. I was so broken emotionally that I was like, I don't care. Um, and then what happened was, and thank God for this. So in September of 2011, which is interesting because it's 9-11 and that was my 9-11 when my whole world came crashing down, um, I, he was getting ready to go on a uh, trip to see his family in, um, in Florida. And so right before that, I had been, you know, after one of my breaking down, I used to go into my master bedroom closet and hide so my kids wouldn't hear me. And I went in there and I, you know, I must have been in there for like two to three hours. And I just started begging the universe, you know. I need you to send me a sign, send me a sign. I just need, a, I need something like anything. Just send me a sign, throw a brick in my direction. Right. Well, the next week I got my sign. <laughs> I got a huge like cement truck, you know, that railroaded me. Um, the next week when he was going uh, out of town, I had lunch with him before he left and he was being his typical, just really cruel, mean, um, bossing me around, being super controlling, telling me how it's going to be, that kind of thing. Um, this was something I had gotten used to at this point. And um, so, um, so he said, you know what, I'll just call you when I land. So, uh, so he got on the plane. I went home. My mother had been visiting. Thank God. Thank God my mother was visiting during this time because she helped me with my kids that following week. Um, but so he got on the plane and um, about a month before he had gotten a new phone. Um, and this is back when, you know, we didn't have the, the phones like we do today. This was a like a um, he traded in his flip phone for one he could wear on his belt right? But the problem was, is that it butt dialed the house all the time without him knowing. And so we, you know, we kind of laugh about it, whatever, like he would accidentally call while he was at work or whatever. And I'd be like, hello, hello. And there was nobody there. And I'd say, Hey, your phone butt dialed me again. So here's how the universe stepped in and helped me out. So he left and I went back home a few hours later, I got a phone call. And it was him. He said, he sounded terrible. He was talking in like a, like a low voice. And he's like, Hey, I just landed. I wanted you to know that I just landed and, but I'm not feeling really well. So I can't really talk right now. And I said, Oh babe, are you okay? Are you nauseous from the flight or whatever? He's like, yeah, I just, I feel really sick. And I said, okay, well, you know, go sit down and take some deep breaths and call me later. And he's like, okay, bye. The phone rings 
I hang up the phone and it calls me back immediately. And I hear the first thing I hear is a woman laughing. And then I hear him talking and his phone had butt dialed me back after we had hung up. And so for the next 30 minutes of which most of that I spent in the bathroom throwing up for the next 30 minutes, I heard him talking to a woman with an accent and she was, I couldn't hear what she was saying, but she was laughing and, you know, you could tell it was just very animated. And I was listening to him and I was like, who the hell is this man? I had no idea who he was because of how he was talking to her. He was like, if like a guy walked up to you and was talking to you like that in a bar, you might slap him, right? Like he was being gross. He was being perfect you know, like a pervert. Um, and I'm like, who is, I've never heard him. He never talked to me like that when we first met, you know? And, um, so it was about 30 minutes. I heard them in the airport. I heard them all the way to baggage claim. It was about 30 minutes when the phone cut out. So what that did, what, after I got out of the bathroom, (laughs) cleaned myself up, Um, what that did is, you know, um, is set me on a course for the next week that, that moment woke me up. That was the, you know, brick thrown in my face by the universe. It's like, here's your sign. What are you going to do with it? So that woke me up. Um, I went while he was gone, he was gone that whole week. And I went into everything. I ransacked his office. I went into his phone. I checked records. I went into his computer. We had a lot of business dealings with a lot of banks. And I would, you know, because of all of our businesses. And in the past, I would just like go into sign stuff. So I didn't even know what our business finances were. Um, so I went and talked to everybody. I found out exactly where I stood and what he was doing. And what he was doing was living a double life that included grooming uh, young immigrant immigrant girls who were here uh, working, who were in our state for the summer. They were from another country. And he was grooming them just like a sexual predator does. Um, And there were four of them. So he was grooming all of them in the hopes that one of them, you know, that he could get one of them too. And that's the one he was talking to when I, when I heard him on the phone. Um, so this double life is what, that's, that's what started the, you know, that was the catalyst for, for eventually me leaving. I did go back to him once. Um, and that was because I could, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to divorce. I wasn't, cause he was, he had apologized and all that, you know, shit that, narcissists do and then they just go back to doing what they're doing Uh, but that was that was you know 2011 the reason that was the worst year of my life is because when you're in a place where even though I was miserable even though I was sick and unhappy um, I still could never have guessed you know that I would one day find out that this person, this man I loved, had children with, had invested my entire soul and being to uh, with, um, would turn around and it's and and discovering that he's not who I thought he was, right? He's a sexual predator. Um, he was, you know, cheating, lying, manipulating everything, every um, you know, everything that every dastardly deed he could do. Um, I found out about. So um, yeah, that was, that was the catalyst for me to finally, that was the catalyst to, to get me where I am today. You confronted him when he got I back? Were there any, was it possible to have criminal charges at that point for the girls that he was grooming? No, because they were 18. Okay. So which doesn't make it any less disgusting because we were nope. in our mid-40s. Yep. But they were 18. Um, but you know, the nowadays I have a really dark sense of humor, obviously, because that's how you right? That's how you get through it. Um, uh, you gotta have a dark sense of humor about it. Um, but looking back, I remember when I was in high school and I was, and you know, me and my girlfriends, we would go have some old guy and by old, I mean like in their forties, <laughs> Right. We'd, we'd, as teenagers, we'd have some old guy buy a spear, right? Because we weren't old enough. Um, and then, you know, that old guy may want to come to our party in exchange or whatever else. We're like, eh, whatever, you're gross, but go ahead. 
Um, and then you have like the one old guy at your party, right? Like the pervert. Um, and then I realized after this experience, I'm like, oh my God, I married the pervert. I married the pervert, right? Because that's exactly what he was doing um, to these girls. He was, uh, while I was either out of town or just behind my back, or I, I didn't even know because like I said, I was just, I was just trying to get from sun up until sundown every single day. So what he was doing during the day until late at night, I had no clue. And I really didn't care because I was, I was just so, I was so beaten down. Uh, but that's what he was doing, grooming these girls, uh, buying them liquor, going to their parties, um, just doing all the gross things that, you know, purse do. <laughs> what? Yeah. Finally, how did you finally get out and then fill in the gaps? Because clearly your website is all about helping people in these situations yeah. to not have to struggle as much as you do. So that yeah. that's a direct line from point A to point B. But what made you launch it? And now what are you doing? Other, what happened to ballroom dancing and what are all the other businesses? So tie up those loose ends and connect it to today. Yeah. So, um, it, it was, uh, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Um, when I did leave, I made, I did go back to him because narcissists are really good at hoovering you and getting you to go back. So I did go back to him before. And, and that's what I, I help women with now is you, you, you go back and they just get worse. Narcissists don't change. They just get worse. And that's what happened in my case. So, um, so I left him in 2013 for good. Then I went through a horrible divorce. Narcissists are notorious for being just absolutely punishers in a divorce. And they will, they will bring you to your knees and involve your kids and hurt your kids. And there's no line that they won't cross. So I went through a terrible divorce with him um, where, um, you know, I was unfortunately... Again, I made every single mistake, which led me to do what I do now because I want to help any woman I can to not make any of these mistakes. One of, those, one of the mistakes is that I had a terrible attorney who did not advocate for me, so I lost so much, um, and I've had to start completely over from scratch, even though he's still living in our 10,000-square-foot house on 10 acres, and he's got all of our you know, businesses and income from it. Uh, so that was a huge mistake is that I didn't have, you know, good representation during that time. Also, uh, I found out that he was stalking me because narcissists are notorious for stalking to whatever degree he did it to, you know, the, the highest degree that he could. So for a few years there, I was just trying to survive within, I had three lawyers in three different states, in two different states. I was going through criminal investigations and getting restraining orders and, you know, not even knowing if he was still stalking me. Um, during that time, I was diagnosed with PTSD and with anxiety. I had all sorts of physical problems. Then what happened was, is going through this healing journey uh, the most important thing that I could have done, which I did not do after my first husband, was I just decided, you know what, I'm going to get to the truth of why I am here. Why did I, how did I find myself here? Because, and this is, you know, back when I was like 45, 46, and I thought, I never want to go through this again. I never want to meet another person like this again. I never want to make the same mistake again. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to go deep. It was, it was painful. It was, but you have to go through it. You got to go through hell to get to heaven, right? As Steve Miller sings. Um, and so that's what I did. And that's, that's what saved me and enabled me to get to where I am today, which is a place fully in the light with the darkness behind me for good, for always, and a place where I am emotionally detached and I have emotional freedom from what happened to me. That's why I can talk about anything that happened to me, right? That because it doesn't, I'm not attached to it anymore. I understand it. I know exactly how I got to the place that I got today. And again, that's without blame or shame on myself. I'm not judging myself. It's, this is what happened. Um, so that's what brought me to my you know, purpose today of what I do with women is I just, I made every mistake there was to make 
So in, in leaving and divorcing and having children with a narcissist. Um, and so that's what I do is help women get on the fast track of healing and recovery. Um, so they don't have to make those same mistakes that I did. I love that you do that so much. <laughs> that's so, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to be able to heal enough to help other people. So you're back on your feet and what advice would you give to a woman struggling back in that, that place that you were at that was the worst? What, what would you pass on other than to just reach out to you? Yeah. Um, to, it, this is, this is the hardest part of, of, um, at the, especially like before our healing begins, before that journey begins, but at, either we're at the tail end or we've just left the relationship. So we're sort of in that dark void that's really painful. And this is the reason why an average of, you know, se- women go back to their abuser an average of seven times. It makes total sense. And that's what I did because we get into that dark place where we think that we're unworthy. We're, ha- we're being told that we're never going to find anybody who will put up with it, uh, put up with us, right? That's what I was told. Nobody's ever going to want me. <laughs> um, so I was lucky to be with him. Um, and we're just in such of, of uh, that dark place because we've been conditioned to think so low of ourselves, right? So one of the most important things is to understand that you have been conditioned to think this way. This is not who you are. So if you have that feeling like you're in a fog, if you look in the mirror, like I used to do, and you don't recognize that woman in the mirror anymore, that's because you have been conditioned. So to, to think as you do now, so you cannot trust those voices in your head, the talent that's, that are telling you you're worthless, right? Because those aren't, that's not your voice. So the most important thing that you need to do is to dig deep and get back in touch with that girl that you used to be, right? Before all the abuse started, before, before even meeting the narcissist or going way, way back, like I did back to my, you know, childhood, um, and uncovering with an honest look, right? Not making excuses and understanding that you didn't deserve to be abused. But if you don't find out why you let somebody abuse you, it's going to happen again, right? Um, like I said, it's an open door. So you want to find out why did you have those doors open? Not that you deserved it, not that you attracted them, but just you need to go through the pain you can't avoid it. You can't, you know, I see a lot of women making the mistake of um, jumping right into another relationship, for example, like I did after my first husband. Um, so these are the mistakes. If we, if we in any way try to, you know, self-medicate to avoid going through that pain, um, that's, that's danger right there. We want to, you want to go into sort of a cocoon of self-healing where you're not dating. Um, you're all you're doing is focusing now on yourself. You're putting all that love and compassion and patience onto yourself and figuring out how did I get here? Because I never want to get here. I never want to be here again. Thank you, Susanna, so much for being here and for sharing. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. This was great. And thank you for, you know, letting me just spread more awareness on, on, you know, what it is to be a victim of narcissistic abuse. And to all of you out there who, who are, I just want to let you know that you're not alone. Um, and you're not alone in this. I remember that feeling well of just feeling like I was the only person in the world and I had no hope left. So I'm just telling you from the other side, from a woman who's made it to the other side, where it was just a short time ago that I was like, nope, my life sucks. I have no hope. This is how it's going to be forever. I don't deserve anything better. You do. And I'm here to tell you that you can make it to the other side. Thank you for taking the time to get naked with us. If you'd like to bear it all with me, get in touch. Your story is unique and valuable. Let's show it off.